All right, that's working. Working good. Yep. So, do you want to talk about, you know, here? You want to just bring prep as a topic? Yeah, so <clears throat> when you and I have talked, a lot of the work that I have done has been in the prevention, prevention side. And so, a lot of people within the HIV prevention treatment space have come to understand PrEP or... Um, Pre-exposure prophylaxis. Yeah, and so this me- medication, Drubada, a lot of people have heard about this, was a medication that was used um, as one of the, the the main pillars of HIV treatment, but then it was found that it could be used um, as prevention. And so thinking about this medication or, or this concept of using medication as prevention and it's gaining traction within the HIV arena. In conversations that you and I've had, it's, is there a medication that can be used in the prevention of cravings and of opioid relapse? And it seems like there is. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay. When I'm ready, let me know. Go for it. Okay. If you look at what we are seeing with alcohol and drug addiction, everything is called MAT, medication-assisted treatment. It's treatment, treatment, treatment. And now the other part of that is, is harm reduction. But have you looked at any strategy to help with prevention? Or is there even room for prevention in our field? And I'm going to make that argument that yes, there is a huge opportunity that we have missed for the last several years. And and this concept of a lot of the work that we do when it comes to treatment is after the fact. So we're we're spending a lot of money, we're spending a lot of energy, we're spending a lot of time. And and I know working within the behavioral health component that we're really spending a lot of energy trying to get the person to a point where they're making healthier, healthier choices. Well, what you're saying is if we look at this from a different angle, that it, it could be more effective from a cost-wise, from a resource uh, a- aspect, that, and, and, and to your point, I think we have to look at this problem from every angle. Absolutely. In an, in an epidemic, in a battle for what we are fighting, every weapon has to be utilized. We cannot rule in or rule out anything because of ideological differences or any other reason. So I come back to this. uh, So if you look at, you know, Narcan. Now, I know something about Narcan because the company I work for developed Narcan. And I was personally involved in training physicians and EMTs how to use Narcan. Narcan has, and I think I mentioned earlier, has been described as one of the most perfect drugs ever developed. And that was a precursor to developing other medications. Scientists and researchers and clinicians way back, going back to the 60s, observed one thing, and they, the, the observation was that sending patients back home to an environment that is filled with cues and triggers of past drug use is a huge factor in people relapsing. What can we do, what can we do for them? Obviously, the drug that was the mainstay at that time was methadone, but methadone essentially was treatment. And do we keep somebody on methadone indefinitely? Some patients may benefit. Now we have buprenorphine. But based on what they observed, what is called the deprivation effect or conditioned abstinence, the scientists said we need to work on developing a non-addicting drug that protects these patients. 
and that was the cousin of narc of uh, naloxone or narcan this drug is called naltrexone not too many people are familiar with that so technically speaking naltrexone was developed in the 1960s got approved in 1984 as the first non opioid drug to prevent detox heroin addicts from relapsing when they came back home either from prison or from residential treatments back home okay so technically naltrexone is described is best described as a post exposure prophylactic you were exposed to heroin and opioids now we are going to do something to prevent you from relapsing so it became a post exposure prophylactic but unfortunately it never got much traction we won't go into all the details of it the same drug was developed was found to be very effective to treat alcoholism so when people take naltrexone they substantially cut down on the alcohol use which is a big benefit i am proposing today a very radical idea distributing naltrexone to high risk patients now who could be the high risk patients well we it's almost on a daily basis we have patients said you know i was doing well uh and then uh, for a couple of years and i went back to using was so it during the time that you were not using what were you doing what what kind of protection you had nothing well these are the people who have a ready source they have a, they have a weapon they can use it happens all the time you have people of peer support specialists who are in the trenches in the swamp they need protection they got so many you have family members that maybe one family member succumb to an overdose the others say intributed them i want to take this medication so there's, there's so many patients like these so these are the patients who are at a high risk of relapsing they can make they can be given naltrexone as a prophylactic medication we have done it so successfully in the aid in the aids hiv space why not experience this why not try it here so yearly we have a, a highly effective medication extremely safe that can be used to help people and the pill can be take the pill is very inexpensive and i would highly recommend using the pill because pill allows you an education moment and this would also involve pharmacies and pharmacists this are this is one uh, group of people who have really not utilized uh, effectively in the battle against a- against uh, drug addiction pharmacies by nature are, are willing to use but willing to give out a non-addicting drug like naltrexone and get involved with it because they know if they do distribute the medication it's not going to be diverted it's not going to be sold on the street people can't overdose on it so they are and i talk to many pharmacists and they show a very high level of enthusiasm to do something about it so what i'm proposing is that those people who are at a high risk should take naltrexone 3 days a week they can take two pills on monday two on wednesday three on friday and they are completely protected there's a 100% protection from every opioid you are using that if you do ingest it either accidentally or impulsively you're protected what would you say to you know opponents that that are going to hear what you're proposing and not just what you're proposing what you've used and what you've demonstrated works but there's going to be opponents out there that says look there's been studies on this it, it's not the most effective pathway it's not it it just doesn't doesn't work what would you say to those folks yes now obviously quite a bit of work has to be done okay the biggest uh, 
opposition to method to the use of naltrexone was that you're taking the patient's desire to use opioids. So you're completely blocking their uh, their attempts to use opioids. Because some people want to continue using it. What do you do for these patients? Well, that they are not the best candidates. So my point is that we should we should carefully select the candidates, motivate them, and say this is what what we are doing for them. There are many patients who say I'm tired of my life being on, on the suboxone, methadone, and so on. And it, it just saying no is not enough for me. What else can I do? So yes, select these patients carefully. Tell them what are the benefits and what are the, ch- the challenges that you're taking naltrexone. And we may start with a very small f- subgroup of patients. I mean, we have done this uh, very successfully for uh, physicians and airline pilots and business executives who want to, you want this help for. We can start offering it for a, for, for a larger population who is, who is at a high risk of relapsing. We have had patients who have been taking naltrexone for two, three, four years. Some of, them, some of them have been taking the shot for four or five years without any long-term effects. Yes, so we'll have to do a f- educational program, explain to the patient what this drug is, what are the limitations of the drug, how to take it, what they should not do. Obviously, the biggest challenge is patients attempting to override it. Okay. They take it and say, hey, let me just keep taking more and more to see if it works. You know, it, it, it can happen. It can happen with any drug. You know, we see people on buprenorphine using opioids. So explain to them. The, the other danger is that uh, if, if you're actively using opioids and somebody gives you a naltrexone pill, you're going to go into prolonged and terrible withdrawals. But most drug addicts know about these issues. You know, we do it with Narcan. Because we give them a dose of Narcan, we throw them into severe withdrawals. But those withdrawals last for a relatively short time, maybe 30 minutes or so. But we have to look at this weapon. We have to look at naltrexone as a weapon that might help a a group of people, even if it's 10%, 15% of the population. To me, that's a huge number, that every life saved is a life that has an opportunity to live. Because we, and for the first time, we are focusing on prevention. Now, if I take it to the level of alcohol treatment, it is even it was even more impactful. Alcohol, as you probably know, has no specific uh, receptors in the brain. So if you're drinking actively, you can still take naltrexone without any fear of precipitating withdrawals or something of that sort. So this has been well established um, this, this methodology where people take uh, take naltrexone before they're going to be drinking. By no means I'm promoting use of alcohol, but if somebody says, I want to cut down on my drinking, I do not want to have six, seven drinks that are sitting, maybe you can take a naltrexone pill and have only two drinks. So I'm really hearing harm reduction. And we, when we talk about harm reduction, it, and, and we've made it you know, no qualms. We want to use harm reduction in, in as you know, in the same way that we use other tools, and and so I just want to point out that what you're proposing and and that is a harm reduction technique. Um, what kind of came to mind whenever you were talking about that was you know a lot of people don't know that AZT, the very first drug uh, that was used to treat um, HIV. Uh, was originally a drug to treat cancer, yes. and it had been put on a shelf. It was a, really a horrible drug, um, uh, high mortality. You were probably as likely to die from the medication 
as you were the disease, but it had been on a shelf. And, and so what I'm thinking about is, you know, the medication that you're proposing, obviously I'm not comparing it to AZT, but that, you know, we have to look in non-traditional sources. We have to look at the medications, and this is a drug that we know works. Uh, it just seems like there is a lot of negative, I don't know, negative feelings, negative, negative uh, talk out in the kind of the stratosphere. Why do you think that that is? It really, I cannot think of any other situation where two drugs at the opposite ends of the spectrum were offered as treatment for the same condition. Methadone and naltrex were exactly a poles opposite. And because of the poles opposite, you had albengadin that started. They both, you know, so it threatened the, the established orthodoxy that addiction is an untreatable illness, is an untreatable disease, that the only treatment is, you know, is staying on some medication for the rest of your life. And the introduction of naltrexone was a seismic occurrence. It really was a, you know, it created such a, you know, almost like the tectonic plate shifted. <laughs> And people felt very threatened by that. And to me, what bothered me so much, because when I was uh, associated with promoting the drug, that that restricting a drug only to the well-to-do people was the worst thing you could have done. It really bothered me that they said, let's keep naltrexone for the motivated patients, the physicians, the airline pilots, the business executives, because there's something to lose. That really bothers me even to this day. So just because you are working as a, you know, on an assembly line or you're working as a, you know, as a laborer, you are, you are not motivated. Motivating the patient to do well is my job. Not, it does not come internally. Mm-hmm. And not offering them patients a choice, to me, I think is both um, unethical and I think irresponsible. I had a, a, a patient that came to me that I've been seeing, and this patient was on Suboxone, was not working for, for this person, and so made the switch over to methadone. A lot of conflicts, as you might imagine, saying, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to make the shift, but Suboxone just wasn't really working for them. And, and so as I worked with this individual, it was important for me to highlight that whatever works for you, right? If methadone works for you, good. If Suboxone works for you, good. If uh, Nontrexone works for you, whatever that, that is, it's going to get you to the point. The point of these medications is to help with cravings. It's to help with you not wanting to use. And then if we can get you to that point of, of you know, arresting your use, then we're able to really focus on what's causing you to use. Is it childhood trauma? Is it a, abuse? Is it whatever, poor self-image? We can really get to the, the brass tacks, as they say, mm-hmm. uh, of what the reason is. And so after talking with this person, you know, and, and this person had understood that, you know, that's switching to methadone, there's a lot to it. You're now going to be required to go every day to get dosed and to participate in programming. Um, and so I think, obviously, it's about informed consent and the individual making a decision that's right for them. How many drugs are there to treat opioid addiction? <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a ton, right? There's like 45 drugs to treat 
Opioid addiction. (laughs) I know you're being sarcastic, right? (laughs) I am. I am. I am. That's what happens. Look at the, compare this with the, with what you see with AIDS and HIV. Okay. 35 years ago, 36 years ago, we did not even know how AIDS and HIV is caused, what was behind it. The drug we used was, you know, you mentioned AZT, you tried that. We know it because we were desperate for something. And in less than 35 years' time, we have over 25 medications, 25 medications that can, in five or six different classes, they are so incredibly effective that if you are HIV positive, it's no more a death sentence. And all we are doing with with the addiction to opioids is harm reduction, just keeping you alive. You say, our goal is to just keep you alive. Is that what you're, you know, how would the AIDS community have, have viewed us if we said our goal is to only keep you alive? We don't want you to get, get back to a, you know, to a more thriving mode or a more fulfilling mode. Just, you know, we'll just keep you alive. I mean, to me, it's, it's just shocking that we do this. And all we have is three medications and we fight and attack each other. This is the time we should, we should bring our resources together. We should put, bring a, put our minds together and say, how can we intelligently, creatively use these meds to save people? I mentioned, I think, earlier that we are the only industrialized country in, this, in the world that has seen a decrease in life expectancy for three years in a row. We lost 50,000 patients a year, not 50,000 collectively, 50,000 a year. That means one Vietnam War per year for the last 10 years. And we are told that this is going to continue for the next 8 to 10 years. So just, just accept the fact that we are going to, lo- we are going to lose another four or 500 million pe- uh, people in the prime of life. Is that acceptable to us? I mean, I get emotional about it. Is that what we want to do? We have weapons. And if for some reason it doesn't work because naltrexone has no long-term effects, you can stop it any time. Use it in a creative way. You know, start with a small pilot project. And what we have found out, you know, this is what I talk quite um, uh, often, is that both methadone and buprenorphine, they have both an inbuilt incentive and a sanction. The incentive is that you take the medication, you feel normal, you feel well. Because you know it affects enough, and then and the sanction is that if you don't take it, you're going to have some withdrawal symptoms. So that inbuilt uh, sanction and incentive is what keeps people staying on the medication. Okay. Naltrexone does not have that. You take naltrexone, it does nothing to you. You don't take naltrexone, it does nothing to you. But when you take it, it protects you. It's like a seat belt. It just it 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 sort of passively protects you. It's like an insurance policy. It's like a seat belt that protects you. So what can we do to enhance the, the, the incentives? I would highly recommend what is called condition, conditional uh, cash transfer, CCT. Give them a small incentive, maybe $1 a day. If I tell a patient, if you come to the pharmacy or come to the clinic and take the medication three times a day, three times a week, excuse me, for a month, you'll get a $25 gift card at the end of the month. Believe me, we will have people standing in line around the block because they are not looking so much for the value of the, of the gift you give them, but they're looking for the appreciation, that you are really appreciating what we have done. I was looking. I had saved a, a uh, article that I had read about incentivizing, and the documentation, the studies are very clear 
that incentivizing works. And, and as you were talking, you know, we started to get a better picture of who this medication can be used for. We know it's great for individuals who are coming out of a prison or jail setting where they've had periods of abstinence. Um, also, I've had over the years many individuals who were truck drivers or, you know, groups that were mandated by Department of Transportation or different groups where MAT is 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 viewed where if I'm a truck driver and I'm on MAT, I can't be until I, I come off of it. And, and so who is this drug great for? Well, it's really great for someone who says, I don't want to be on Suboxone because I feel like Suboxone is still, it gives me that really weird feeling. And so maybe they're to a point where they, they just don't want to be on Suboxone anymore. And, and so uh, I think, you know, being very mindful that not every drug or every medication therapy is a perfect fit for everyone. And we have to have yeah, we have to have more options than three to be able to give people. Exactly. We have the, so why not, you know, so the third option of naltrexone is virtually overruled. It is it's not even mentioned in, in you know when people go out and give talks, they just, all they talk about is just methadone and, and, and buprenorphine or, or suboxone. Fine, they are very effective medications, but for a subset of patients, whether they have 10%, 15%, 20%, 20%, naltrexone is a lifesaver. And if you don't, if, first of all, we have to get educated about naltrexone. Remove all the prejudices that we have and then offer it in a, in a, in a yeah, because quite often naltrexone is viewed as a punishment. No, naltrexone actually is an um, incredible medication that restores your self-autonomy, gives you the freedom that nothing else gives you. How many patients want to stand in line uh, you know, at a methadone clinic every day for the rest of their life? How many patients you know, are struggling because for some reason the physician is out of town, they can't make an appointment, they're without, the, they without the buprenorphine or suboxone? Here we have a medication that could be picked up anywhere. There is no danger of being abused or being sold on the street. So I'm, this is my plea. I said, let's all the brilliant minds that have been so committed to helping in our field, let's talk about it. Let's open a dialogue and explain that they know how to contact me and see what are the, you know, where it would fit in, what are some of the issues we need to address, what are some of the unknowns that we have overlooked. But I have talked to experts in, around the country that yes, medication-assisted prevention has to be an important part of recovery. Treatment, so methadone and buprenorphine are treatment, naltrexone is prevention. And let's give prevention a fighting chance. So, so this medication, I, I could take it, it's not gonna benefit me, it's not gonna hurt me. The only way it's gonna really impact is if I'm trying to use opioids. And then I'm not going to see any any benefit from the opioid. Is that is that the exactly. way? Exactly. So once I take it, it's it's like a it's like a Teflon coating around my opioid receptors. Uh, people are making such a big deal about uh, you know these uh, uh, dogs that go out sniffing for drugs. They sometimes have sniffed fentanyl and they have overdosed, which is I have never heard that. But people say you know this has to be done. Well, I'm suggesting why why don't why don't you give the dog a tablet of naltrexone? <laughs> <laughs> to protect them. So yeah, that access, as it, you know, it's like saying you go to a malaria-infested country. You go to an area. There's lots of malaria. You have not, you have not got malaria. What do you do? As soon as you go to a mosquito-infested area, you start taking the anti-malarial pill. 
and it does nothing to you. But if God forbid you got bitten, your chances of getting malaria are, are minimized. Same thing here, naltrexone will minimize, will virtually eliminate that you would accidentally or impulsively use opioids. And if you are drinking, you're going to drink less on that. It is one of the most, un this is a 40-year-old medication that has been woefully underutilized. And I think, to me, it's a national scandal, especially in the face when so many people are dying. So, so let's, we were talking before we started recording, um, and, you know, a lot of my work has been centered around the HIV movement. But when we start looking at, you know, if you look at anything, you can really tell where priorities are in the budget. Let's talk a little bit about the budget, because we were, you were pointing out the numbers on what's being spent on HIV AIDS, um, which I think we can all agree we've never been as close as what we are now to a cure. Um, and so some would argue that, that we need to like continue on the, the gas pedal to see an end to that. Um, a lot of money has also been poured in by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, and uh, other private um, philanthropists. But that, that number that you, you pointed out to me, there's such a stark contrast. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, because I just, I just pulled out the figures. Okay? We have got 1.1 million people that are impacted by, that have that are been diagnosed with having HIV or AIDS. And we diagnose about 35 to 38,000 new cases a year. That's the national figure. Mm -hmm. So 1.1 million people who are living with uh, HIV and about 38,000 are diagnosed every year. And to help these people, the budget for 2019 was 28 billion, B as in boy, billion dollars. Okay, $28 billion. Granted that about $6 billion is sent overseas because you know, HIV still is ravaging many parts of Africa, so we need to help those countries. On the other hand, we have close to 18 million people, 18 million people impacted by drugs and alcohol, 1-8 million, and about another 45 million people impacted by mental you know, uh, health issues, depression, anxiety, and so on. And do you know what the budget for that is? 17 million or 18 million people with drugs and alcohol and 46 million with, with uh, mental illness. And the budget is $8.68 billion. $8.68 billion. And it says that they have requested $65 million less in the budget for 2020. If this is not a national scandal and if we don't jump on the rooftops and say this is unfair, I don't know what is unfair. $8 billion as against $28 billion. Why? Because I think we have to take a lot of the blame. We have not shown good results. We continue to call it a disease. We say you have no hope of getting well. We don't show any enthusiasm for newer medications. We are stuck in, you know, in the reverse gear and we seem to be quite happy with it. Which are the chronic conditions we know of that has only three medications to fight it? You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking and this is not going to be popular, I say this all the time, um, that, you know, HIV, when it first began, it was known as GRID. People believed that it was uh, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, yeah. uh, Haitians, and heroin users. So those were the four H's. Um, and it wasn't until Ryan White came along and you had this, you know, I have no really other way of putting it, you had this lily white... Uh, hemophiliac, this child who was the innocent, 
right? And, and, and so then you really saw the Elizabeth Taylors, you saw the Michael Jacksons, you saw the celebrity Hollywood ha- had really came in behind. But there's really been no poster child that, is, that can be viewed as the innocent. Maybe like heroin babies, the opioid babies, right? Um, do you think it's just because of the stigma, because of how we view everything through a moralistic lens? Now, HIV's changed. Obviously, today, um, people understand, you know, black and brown communities are disproportionately being impacted. Uh, Latinas are the, the second highest new rates of new infection. But we understand social determinants help to cause uh, increased risk of HIV infection. And it's not a, a you know, a sin. It's, it's social determinants. There's a lot to it. Um, I don't see that shifting when it comes to substance use. And, and I don't know what it's going to take to shift people's thinking that, look, it's not, you're not a bad person if you're a substance user. You, you're a sick person. You're, you're dealing with a mental health situation. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, what's it going to take? You know, I think it's a, I don't know what it's going to be, but we have solutions to that. For the longest time, we have seen addictive disorders, whether it is alcoholism or drug use, as really a moral failing, as an inner weakness. So the best way to do that is condemn these people, stigmatize it. Since we can't find a treatment for them, let's do the list. Let's put them, you know, treat them like lepers. We have done that. And because we have done that, there are now groups, there are silos that want to, want to capitalize on this. So look at the silos we have. We have the methadone silo. We have the buprenorphine silo. We have the 28-day silo. We have the AA silo. We have the Narcotics Anonymous silo. Each one so vehemently sticks to their own belief that they are quick to reject or sometimes even condemn any other attempt to change that. What we have to do with these silos have to all come together. I mean, I've been saying this so many times. We have over 1,500 methadone clinics, 1,500 of them around the country. Imagine if these, these clinics became true clinics that were offering comprehensive treatment, not just open for three, four hours a day, but they were open for all day. They treated people with addictive disorders, opioid addiction. They also treated in the afternoon or later in the day people with alcoholism. What an, what an amazing... Can you think of any other disorder that is only treated with just one medication. Can you, the doctor says, Arian, I'm a diabetologist, I'm an endocrinologist, but only, my clinic only gives you insulin. And the other clinic says, I only give you oral hypoglycemic agents. Mm-hmm. So that is the problem. So they, what people don't realize that the treatment industrial complex is alive and well and thriving. And as long as that complex exists, we are not going to make much progress. There's been a lot of conversation in the last, I think, probably an increased awareness in the last five years of what's now commonly referred to as body brokers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many people may not understand, you know, if you're, if you're a, an affluent family and little Johnny gets, you know, he starts to deal with an opioid addiction or a substance use issue, that a family that's well off, has great insurance, means is going to jump at the chance of putting that child into a treatment center, and you're looking at fifteen to twenty thousand dollars for that. And and so, you know, when we start talking about the incentives, the silos, you know, an episode of care putting that individual into a treatment bed, there's incentives being paid for that. 
if the person relapses and then has to enter into a second episode of care, that, and the, the cost for this starts to really rack up, and this, this idea of body brokers who get paid a percentage or a benefit or a, a, uh, you know, a sliding scale for every body that they put into a bed, um, it really tilts the favor uh, of keep the beds full. Absolutely. We want to make sure people are there. There's really a perverse incentive to have these more expensive programs. You go, for, you go to these programs in California and Florida, $28,000, $30,000. The insurance companies are paying for it. Now, you look at this, for instance, you have buprenorphine. We have restrictions on them. Less than 5% of U.S. physicians have obtained the DEA waiver to prescribe it. So the other 95% has no interest in writing for this medication. The sales of buprenorphine have exceeded $2 billion. If $2 billion you know, was spent on this, how come we still see these uh, debts that are not coming down? There has to be something happening. Because I've said this over and over again. Opiate substitution treatment works well, reasonably well, if the, if the access of supply is cut off. If the supply is not cut off or not curtailed, then you are not going to make any dent. Then, unfortunately, the opiate substitution treatment, the OST, now becomes grist or becomes uh, food for the, the addiction. It's, it's well known. It's like diet. If you want people to lose weight, you can't just have to be, uh, tell them to go on a diet. You have, to, you have to reduce the access to junk food. Either make it more expensive or have fewer, you know, junk food places. Why do we fail? Why has diet failed so miserably? Because there's very little incentive for them to stick with the diet. You know, they, stay, they get the diet for a few days. They go out, they see donuts, pizza, tacos everywhere. How are you going to lose weight? The same here. If, if the opiates are everywhere, they are cheaper, they are more potent, the incentive to not take your Suboxone or not to show up at the methadone clinic is very great. So we have to think in a very radically different way. And I'm truly, I'm going to be talking more and more about pre-exposure prophylaxis for opiate and alcohol use. And this is my new mission. So to give our listeners a little perspective, what we're talking about is a continuum. There's different points of entry for an individual who has a substance use issue whether that be detox, a medical detox, a treatment, uh, a treatment residential program, intensive outpatient, or an out- outpatient program, we know that you know the first time or the second time that a person's in a residential program, the higher the chance of success. But it's not uncommon to see individuals who have been four, five, six, seven, eight times into a residential program. Sometimes I get folks that I, I tell them, look, you could teach a class in a residential. You know, residential is good at giving a pause at life. We can kind of catch our collective breath, and then we can put a team in place. What you're talking about with this medication is we've been through that. Now we're on the outside where the rubber meets the road, where, where life happens. And, and so in this pre-exposure prophylaxis aspect, um, this is for that individual who's, who's been sober, they've been controlled, they're wanting to come off the, the methadone or suboxone, or maybe they've been off of it. But maybe they're experiencing, hey, I know I'm going to have a stressful family interaction. I know I'm going to have X, Y, Z, um, and that's going to spike my, my stress. This is something that I can do 
um, that, that can help to keep me protected. And so this is where it fits in on the continuum. Absolutely. And I think I gave you the example about maybe three years ago. I had this young mother that came crying to the clinic. I said, what's the problem? She says, I was a heroin addict seven years ago. I'm now married. I have two children. My life was great. I'm not anything. But my best friend overdosed on heroin and died. And I just have this urge to use heroin. I just, I just cannot stop it. I went to my doctor and said, doctor, can I get some naltrexone? And the doctor said, what are, you talk- what are you talking about? I had never heard of this. He just told her to get lost. Then she came to me and came to my clinic. I said, can I get some naltrexone? I said, why not? I said, you know, our doctor will see you, will give you the prescription, and I'll even pay for it. Because naltrexone is very inexpensive. It's less than, but it's just about a dollar a pill. So tell me, if there was no other choice, I could not put this, I could not tell this girl, go, go to the methadone clinic. I could not put her on Suboxone. I do not want those meds. I just want the naltrexone. So we have got hundreds of such examples of people who benefit from it. She, and she came on her own. She said, I heard about ARCA. Can you please help me? Now, can you imagine if we have pharmacies that are now being trained, they can go to the local pharmacy. Pharmacies are among the most trusted of all professionals. They can educate the people, give them a little consent form to sign, saying, look, this is what can happen, so these are the precautions you take. Say five years ago, Aaron, we, we could not even conceptualize giving out Narcan. You know, people said, if you give out Narcan, it'll increase the drug use, it'll increase all. None of that happened. Look at the number of lives Narcan had saved. And I am still saying, let's make, let's distribute that even more. But Narcan is after the event. Mm-hmm. If you could do something to prevent the event, wouldn't that be an amazing uh, change of paradigm or paradigm shift? Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about that where people are in the stage of change, and you know, we need more tools. We need more things to offer the individuals we work with. We need more tools to offer the clinicians who are working with individuals who are, are combating this. And, you know, having three medications and a handful of comfort meds, that's not fixing it. And out of the three medications, two have severe restrictions. Methadone you can only get in a clinic form. And buprenorphine, you need to get a DEA waiver. So only 5% of U.S. physicians have obtained the waiver. So for all practical purposes, patients have no access to treatment. So the, 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 the best access they have is going to the drug dealer because there are drug dealers at every street corner. And I want to have, I want to have treatment at every street corner. Let's reverse the, mm-hmm. the tables. So it seems like there's an incentive for you know, drug companies to push you know, if you're, if you're a patient and I'm putting you on a medication that you're going to be dependent on, that's a, a repeat customer. Absolutely. Um, it, it, I don't know. That, it, it boggles my mind. Uh, but that's a whole other conversation yeah, to be had. But that's exactly what is happening. You know, you heard me say this over and over again. There's not a single case in history where a chronic condition has been successfully treated with an addicting drug. It has never happened. Yes, we have to use them for a short time, just like you know, when you have acute pain, you use an opioid drug. But when you started using opioids for chronic pain mm-hmm. and, you, and you threw open the, 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 the barn door, you know, that's what happened. So when you threw open the, in the hot lab, so as long as opioids were restricted in its use, it was fine. 
So same here. We have to develop newer medications, newer therapies, newer strategies to help people. You cannot just say, I'm only going to use this. Mm-hmm. Now, I have said this over and over again. You know, just for the sake of argument, let's make methadone and buprenorphine over the counter. Anybody can get it. What do you think will happen? An absolute disaster, right? It have an absolute disaster. Why, do, why is Narcan so well accepted? Only one reason. It's a non-opioid, it's a non-addicting drug. It has no street value. You cannot abuse it, you cannot overdose on it. So here we have another medication that has similar applications. Let's utilize it and let's do something to save this nation. Losing a million people is just not acceptable. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about colleagues who are doing this really important work nationwide and the users' unions and, and really about engaging individuals who are actively using um, to have a voice. And, and, and while, you know, that can be hard for, for people to kind of, you know, wrap their mind around, that, that people who use drugs can make decisions. They're, they're still adults, and we have to help them through, and we want to get them to a point of being healthier. Mm. Um, but they need to do it on their own time. But there's also a group of, um, you know, unions around the country that are focusing on, um, you know, policy advocacy and, and government advocacy. And it, it just seems to me that when's the last time that you went to the state capitol or you went to the, you know, Capitol Hill and you saw on a lobby day a bunch of substance users, right? It's just not seen. You, you see the groups, the Alzheimer's Association, the, you know, Colon Cancer Association, whatever. These are all very palatable groups that are very sympathetic. Um, in the end, it's really about empowering substance users, empowering people who no longer want to be substance users. This is about making people's lives better. And, and we strive every day in clinic. We strive in the work that we're doing. Um, it's about people having lives where they regain power. They're able to work a job. They're able to have a family. They're able to be meaningfully engaged um, and not just a passive observer in their life. Um, I, I would definitely be interested to hear what our viewers or our, our listeners think about, you know, what you're proposing. It's not too radical for me, um, but to hear what some of the pushback is, because I think this this fits right into the, what everybody's trying to achieve. And I'm not coming, I'm just not saying it in a very casual way. I've given it a lot of thought. I talked to many, many experts and I said, tell me, punch some holes in my story in this what I'm proposing. Tell me what are the negatives. And nobody says has, has said anything negative about it. Because what addiction does, addiction robs you of your self-autonomy. The goal of treatment has to be able to restore their self-autonomy. And that's the whole goal. That's getting you back into a thriving mode. That's getting you back into a more fulfilling life. So we need some radical changes to what we are doing, and I would love to to get some feedback from the listeners and maybe continue this dialogue. Yeah, I would be interested if you, you know, if you care about this topic and you want to, you know, have this conversation, please let us know. You know, this really is an all-hands-on-deck problem, right? There's no, I said this last week, I'll continue to say it, no strategy that we have is completely right or completely wrong. We, we have to look at it 
um, the numbers that you gave, the, the millions of people that are impacted by this, 50,000 deaths per year, um, and clearly throwing money at this problem in and of itself is not fixing anything. So, so we have to think about it in a more thoughtful manner. Um, what's and, and maybe it's something we're not doing, we haven't done, and this is a new strategy. We have to bring down those walls. Those silos have been in existence for too long. The walls are too thick and they're too tall. It's time that those walls come down. Well, Percy, I always enjoy our conversations. Another uh, 45, 46 minutes to fast. Um, so I, I would encourage our listeners, you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, uh, or Apple Podcasts. Please share within your networks, um, share on social media, and find us on social media. Anything else, Percy? No, thank you so much for inviting me. I want to continue this dialogue, and uh, let's save lives.